you and I join together along with our brothers and sisters who are watching uh, across uh, the city, some from different places in the United States, some even from different places in the world who tune in and join us on our live stream. And so we welcome you today, uh, whether you're watching uh, on our live stream or whether you're watching this at a later time recorded, we're so grateful for you and I'm so thankful that all of you have come today. Together with hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of people today around this globe, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But I want to ask you a question, maybe one of the most important questions we could ever really address. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he physically rise from the dead? Did, this, did the same body that was nailed to that cross, that was pronounced dead by professional executioners, the Roman soldiers, that when the body was asked for, Pilate sent word to confirm that he was dead, and they confirmed it. They stuck a spear in his side, which confirmed it. That body, tortured, beaten, battered, taken down from the cross, buried, sealed in the tomb, dead. Did that same body, literally, after three days, suddenly resurrect and come back to life so that when he walked out of that tomb, it was the same body, but now resurrected body. Is that something that's truly that there was a moment in history, an event that really happened that was the resurrection of Jesus, or is that something that really has just been passed down to us through church tradition and oral tradition, generation after generation, century after century, so that it's something that we are taught that we need to believe, but there's really no way to really prove it. And maybe we're sitting here today, and maybe we don't even think it even matters. I mean, does it, does it really even matter if he really rose from the dead or if it's just something that, that we believe that something spiritual happened and we believe it? Does it even matter? And you might be surprised to find out that the Bible says, oh, yeah, it matters. The Bible in 1 Corinthians 15 says emphatically that if Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, then our faith is useless. It's in vain. And that we are liars because we go around telling people that Jesus rose from the dead. So if he didn't, then we must be liars. And the church is a hoax and it's a fraud. That all of Christianity just is to be dismissed as fake if Jesus did not, at a moment in time in history, actually rise again from the dead. So the Bible says this is critically important. But if he actually did rise from the dead, then that is huge. Because it means that our faith 
is based on something that is provable. It was something that, that actually happened. That there's real evidence for this. And that because he actually rose from the dead, the Bible says you can know that if you place your life in the hands of Jesus, that he will forgive you of all of your sins. You can know that, that his death on the cross completely paid for your sins. That is guaranteed when he rose from the dead. You can know that the Bible is totally true because Jesus said that every single syllable of the Bible is true. And Jesus said, now, you can know whether I'm telling you the truth or not by whether or not I rise from the dead. In fact, over and over again, his enemies would challenge him when he would cleanse the temple or he would say some things. His enemies would challenge him and say, by what right do you have to do this? By what authority do you have to do these things? And Jesus would say, well, here's the sign I'll give you. This will prove to you. He says, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up, meaning his body, the Bible says. In three days, he would rise again. Over and over again, Jesus said he would rise from the dead. And he says, my resurrection from the dead will prove to you without any doubt that what I'm saying to you is absolutely true and everything that I do is absolutely true. So if he didn't rise from the dead, it's all completely false. But if he rose from the dead, it's all completely true. Now perhaps we're thinking today, well, you know, it's over, you know, centuries ago. It's almost 2,000 years ago. I mean, there's no way we can really settle this now, is it? Well, that's, that's really not the case. I mean, all the time you read about uh, cold cases, maybe from years ago, and that someone will take a fresh look at the evidence and they will begin maybe get another piece of evidence or whatever, and all of a sudden they will solve a case that maybe happened a long time ago. I was reading about one, I think it was this last week, maybe a week before, where there was this cold case of over 40 years ago, and they looked at the evidence again, and they were able to solve that case. And so today, today what I want us to do is I want us to go look at the evidence. I want us to go back and look at the crime scene. Because make no mistake about this, the empty tomb was a crime scene. Because the Roman government had put a seal on that door. They had sealed that and said, by the authority of Rome, no one is to tamper with this. And if you tamper with this and you break the seal, you have broken the law and all of the full might and wrath of the Roman government will come down on your head. And so that first Easter, that stone was rolled away and that seal was broken and this is now a crime scene. But the this gospel accounts so beautifully preserve that crime scene that you and I can go back and look at it today and we can examine the evidence. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know if I'm going to get this completely right or not. But it's my understanding that if, if something happens and you have eyewitnesses of that, that that eyewitness can 
identify a person. Maybe they pick them out of a lineup. Or maybe they, you know, describe them to a sketch, uh, sketch artist. And that artist uh, puts it down and, and they look at it and say, yeah, that's, that's it. Maybe they pick them out of a photograph. And so eyewitnesses are very powerful in the court of law, particularly if you get more than one. So if you could get two or more witnesses who say this, that they saw something, I mean, that goes a long way toward proving something. But there are a lot of things that happen, crimes or whatever, where there are not necessarily eyewitnesses. And then you collect what's called circumstantial evidence. Now, I always thought circumstantial evidence meant uh, something that was sort of little, like little bitty coincidences, and if you put enough of them together, it sort of made them probably a good probability they might be guilty. But really, circumstantial evidence is really evidence that there's not an eyewitness, but it's, it's like a piece of a puzzle. It's true. It's a true fact. And it's, it's put by itself, it doesn't prove the person is guilty. But it's like a piece of a puzzle. And you put that piece there, then you put another circumstantial evidence, and another piece goes in place, then another piece, and then another. And pretty soon the puzzle is complete, and now you know this person is guilty. So, for example, let's say that last night around 2 o'clock, one of the stores in the area around here, their alarm goes off at 2 in the morning, and there's a break-in, and there's a robbery. Let's say that there's no eyewitnesses. But when the investigators go to the scenes and they get to looking around, they find fingerprints. And so they, they look at these fingerprints and they have a number of suspects because there's all kinds of fingerprints in the store. But then suppose that they go over and look at where the glass was broken and they notice that there's some blood on that glass. And so they collect the DNA sample from that glass and they match it to the data bank and all of a sudden they get a match. And now they have someone that DNA was there at that particular spot where the break-in happened. Their fingerprints are in the store. So then suppose that they go to their cell phone and they look and they're able to track their cell phone. And they notice by the cell phone history that that person was right in the area at exactly the time the alarm was going off. And then suppose on that evidence they get a warrant, they go to the person's house, and when they go into the house, they find some of the stolen goods in that house. Now you've put all these different pieces together, and now most of us here would go, that's pretty compelling evidence that that person did the crime, right? So today what I want us to look at is did Jesus really, historically, physically, rise from the dead. What does the evidence say? Because everybody acknowledges the tomb is empty. I want you to get that. His disciples knew the tomb was empty, but even his enemies acknowledged the tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. The seal's been broken. The tomb is empty. Now the only question is, where's the body? How is this tomb empty? So let's return to the crime scene. In Matthew chapter 28, in verse 1. After the Sabbath at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. 
There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. For the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. The he is not here, he said. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see this empty tomb, this place where he lay. So the tomb is empty. Now you'll notice that it says that the guards there were terrified. Why were the guards there? Well, in the same chapter, verse tw uh, chapter 28, down in verse 11, it says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. So I want you to, to get this picture. The tomb is now empty. Something has happened. The guards, the Roman guards who are there, they go to report a version of the story. So we have eyewitnesses now that we're going to see who say that the tomb is empty because the disciples stole the body. So we have eyewitnesses that say the disciples stole the body, and we're going to look in a few minutes that there are eyewitnesses that say Jesus is risen and I've seen him. So we're going to have to examine their claims. So it says, when the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldier a large sum of money telling them you're to say the disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and the story was, has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now, why in the world were there guards at the tomb to begin with? I mean, nobody guards a dead man. Nobody guards particularly someone who's executed as a criminal. You know why there were guards at the tomb? There were guards at the tomb precisely to keep the disciples from stealing the body. The very story that the eyewitnesses say that the disciples stole the body is the very reasons why the guards were there to begin with to keep that from happening. So look back at chapter 27, and what's happened is, the verses right before this, Jesus has just said, Father, into your hand I commend my spirit, bows his head and dies. And as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, placed it in his own new tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone. That means it, it was the Greek word is mega, a massive stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. And the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priest and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, 
After three days, I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead and this last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate answers, take a guard and go make this tomb as secure as you possibly can. Make this tomb as secure as you know. So they went, they made the tomb secure tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. It's interesting to me that the enemies of Christ, the Jewish leaders, remembered that Jesus had said he was going to rise again from the dead after three days. His own followers didn't remember that. He and Jesus had repeatedly said to his disciples, I'm going to die. On the third day, I'm going to rise again. None of them even remember that. They don't even think of that. It doesn't even cross their mind after he dies. But here we are, the enemies, the Jewish leaders, the opposition, they remember because they remember how many times they were challenging him. How are you doing this? By what authority are you doing this? And Jesus staked his authority on the fact, I'll rise again on the third day. So they remember that. And so they're going, we have got to stop that from happening. So they go to the Roman governor. Now I want you to remember something. This is Passover time. Now Jerusalem normally might have 30,000, 50,000 people. But when Passover happened... People came from everywhere. The population of that city would explode and it would go up to over 200, 250,000 people. There are people everywhere. And just a few days before the crucifixion, Jesus had ridden into the city on the donkey. You remember what happened? The whole city turns out and starts going, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It looks like the whole world's going to follow him, right? Now the Romans are really nervous. Their job is to keep the peace in the city. And you've got all these religious people, passionate people coming for Passover. The city is overcrowded. Their Messiah has come into the city. And now we've just crucified him. And we've just crucified the one. And we put a sign over the cross that said, this is the king of the Jews. So the Romans in their mind have just crucified the king of the Jews. And the city is swelling with people. And the Romans are thinking to themselves, according to these Jewish leaders, there may be an attack on this tomb. And there may be these followers of this man who come to try to steal this body. Now, they're not thinking 11 disciples that we know as the apostles who are left. They're not thinking of just 11 guys who were all cowarding and hiding behind closed doors. They may be thinking there might be hundreds. And they're thinking this is a, going to be an organized attack on this tomb. So the Roman governor took this very seriously, and he says, take a guard and make that tomb as secure as you know how. Make it as secure as you possibly can. Now, let me ask you this. How many guards do you think they sent? Sometimes you'll see pictures and it'll look like there's two guards standing there. So if you're Pilate and you think that there's going to be an armed attack on this, on this t- 
tomb to try to steal the body of this king you've just crucified so that the disciples can say he's alive. How many guards do you think you would send if you're trying to secure that tomb against an attack of unknown numbers? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us how many, but I would suspect it was a good number, wouldn't you? What good would it do to send a force that was, would be easily overwhelmed? I know just in the book of Acts, we're told that King Herod arrested Peter one night and he put four watches of soldiers, 16 soldiers, to guard that one man. So if they sent 16 Roman guards just to guard Peter, how many guards do you think they might send if they thought there might be dozens and hundreds that were going to come and attack? So you use your, use your imagination, use your common sense, but there were a good number of guards there. So they come and they seal the stone. Now, here's what that means. These Roman guards are now given the, the charge to guard this tomb, and they have to guard it with their very lives. If something happens to that body, they'll all be killed. We see that in the book of Acts. When, when Peter was delivered from jail, he's got 16 guards surrounding him, and the angel of the Lord opened the jail cell, got Peter out of there. They were all put to death. So these Roman soldiers now know this is serious business. We've got to guard this with our life. So they're going to seal this tomb, but before they seal it, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but Jesus is crucified. He dies at around 3 o'clock. He's, they've got to get him buried before the sun goes down because that's a holy day. And so they quickly grab him and get him and, and, and go through the customary burial practices and get him in the tomb and seal the, the tomb. And then the night comes. And then the Bible says it was the next day that the religious leaders went to Pilate and said, you know what, that, that deceiver said he might rise in three days. So they send the guard down there It's the next day, and so they get there, and they're going to guard this tomb of their life, make sure that body doesn't go anywhere. So before they seal it, they open the stone back up, and they check and verify that the body and the contents are in the tomb. If we're going to seal this thing and with our lives, we've got to make sure it's in there to begin with. So they verify on the next day the dead body of Jesus is in the tomb. They roll the stone shut, they put a rope, and they put wax, and they put it on one side of the tomb, and then they, they seal it with a Roman seal, the seal of the governor, and then they stretch the rope across the opening, across the stone, attach it to the wall of the sepulcher on the other side, put wax on that, put an imprint on that, and that seal guaranteed the contents were in the tomb, and it said, now anybody tamper with this? And the FBI will be after you. Rome will come down on you. And the penalty for that kind of thing was to be burned to death. In some instances. In other instances, it was to be crucified upside down. So now the guards are there. They're guarding this tomb with their life. It's sealed. They verified the contents. And then... 
the angel of the Lord comes, rolls away the stone, and it says some of them go and report to the Jewish leaders what's happened. And it says the Jewish leaders then come up with the best explanation after consulting with the elders of the people, they come up with the best explanation. They've got to have an explanation. The tomb is empty. How did it get empty? So they come up with the explanation and they say to the guards, tell everyone that you fell asleep and the disciples stole the body while you were asleep. And they gave them a great deal of money and the guards said, okay. And they said, it will protect you from the Roman governor. Now, we've got eyewitnesses now that say the disciples stole the body. So let's examine that a minute. Let's imagine that you're a jury. And this is in a court of law. The tomb is empty. Seal's been broken. Crime's been committed. The body's been stolen. That's the accusation. And now you've got these Roman guards. These, certainly their testimonies are weighty. And so these Roman guards then are called to the witness stand. And they say, tell us your story. They said, well, while we were sleeping, Jesus' disciples came and stole the body. Now imagine under cross-examination. The defense attorney comes up and says, well, if you were asleep, how do you know who stole the body? Do you think that would stand? How credible is that? That would be like me, you know, you saying, well, Glenn came to my house when I was asleep and, and stole something. Well, how would you know that if, if you're asleep? Second of all, that is the last thing these Roman soldiers would have done was fall asleep. Their life depended on this. And in fact, the way they were organized was to prevent this very thing from happening. Because let's just say there were 16 guards. They would stand and watch four at a time. So four would get up, one-fourth of them would stand watch, and the other three-fourths would rest. And then every three hours, they would change. And another watch would come up, and they did that so that nobody would fall asleep. Because if they fell asleep, all of them would be executed. So they were elbowing each other, talking, keeping each other awake. There's no way they would have fallen asleep. Third thing, if this really happened, the whole reason they were there was to keep the disciples from stealing the body. And now they go and they come up with a, a plan the disciples stole the body. If that had really happened, the Jewish leaders would have been furious about that. That's the very reason they went to Pilate for a guard was to keep that from happening. They would have been the first ones at Pilate's doorstep saying, your guards let this happen. And they'd have been calling for their heads. But instead, they're saying, we'll protect you. Why would they do that? Also, if it was really true that the disciples stole the body and the disciples had committed a crime, why weren't these Roman guards out there pursuing, looking for them, turning over every stone, trying to arrest them for committing this crime? They didn't do that. 
They didn't pursue them at all. Why is it, if this is true, that when the disciples just a few weeks later are standing up in that very city that's a 20-minute walk to the tomb, and they stand up and they say, this Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty, this Jesus is alive, then why didn't the Pharisees and the Sadducees and why didn't the religious leaders go, that's not true, you stole the body? They never one time said that. Not one time is it ever recorded that they ever bring this up again. Now, they arrested them a number of times, but they, they would arrest them and say, stop telling everybody he's alive. But they never said, because you stole the body, you know you stole the body. They never said that because they knew they didn't steal the body. And all they would have had to do to disprove Christianity, just produce a body. Why weren't they out looking for this body? That's how you solve this problem for the Jewish people. Just go find the body. They weren't even looking for it. So it seems very improbable that what actually happened was that the disciples, who had just a few days before, had ran in fear when an armed guard had come out to the Mount of Olives to arrest Jesus, they all took off. Peter had denied he even knew him. They all fled. Why, why would we think that suddenly after three days, now that he's dead, that suddenly they would get the courage to come up with a plot to say, well, let's go steal the body? Because you've got to remember, put yourself in the disciples' position. There's no way that they would actually be able to know that the Roman guard was going to be asleep. They would assume they weren't going to be asleep, which meant this is going to be an armed attack if this was really true. And what good would that do? If you were going to go make an armed attack against a Roman guard, steal the body, how would you ever convince anybody that he'd actually risen from the dead? So the empty tomb... It's only two explanations that are given. One is the disciple stole the body. The other is he rose from the dead. And the testimony of the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders, how they acted and how the Roman government acted, doesn't stand up. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to indicate that they were telling the truth. Now, there's a second circumstantial evidence, very important. It's found in John chapter 20. John Chapter 20, verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. So they, they don't even think he's risen. So you get this? They think somebody's moved the body. So if they'd have done it, they wouldn't be sitting there saying, they've moved him. We don't know where they've taken him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first. He bent over, and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. When Simon Peter came along behind him, he went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth was still lying in the, its place separate from the linen. 
Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside and he saw the grave closed and he believed. So not only is this tomb empty, but there's grave clothes. The grave clothes of Jesus are left in the tomb. Now, the way they buried it in John chapter 19, just the verses before what we just read, it says that when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, it says that when they took the body of Jesus down and began to prepare it for burial, it says it buried them according to the customs of the day. So here was the customs. We know exactly what it was. It, we're told that Nicodemus had 75 pounds of spices, like myrrh, aloe, other spices. And it says they took linen strips of cloth, and what they would do in burying someone, they would start at the foot, and they would begin to wrap the, the legs. And as they would make each wrap, they would take some of these spices, and they would put it in between each wrap, each layer. The purpose of that was as the body decayed to try to keep the stench and the smell from being offensive. So they would put this in there. And so this body is wrapped. They would wrap up the legs, up both legs, and then the entire torso under the armpits. Then they would wrap the arms. And then they would wrap the whole body in a linen cloth. Then they wrapped the head separately. Now this linen strips, as you put those spices in between the strips, it would begin to absorb those, and they would sort of get wet, and, but then in just a little while, they would begin to dry. And it became like, have any of you ever broken a bone and you had a cast put on, and they had this plaster Paris, and they put it on there, and in about 20 minutes, those gauze that are wet begin to dry, and it hardens. That's exactly what happened with these grave clothes. They hardened into a, a basically a body cast. So you've got from the neck down, and then you've got a separate around the head. And when they walked in and saw these grave clothes and the head is separate from the rest of the body, that cast is sitting there, and maybe it's without the body in it, it's sort of maybe collapsed a little bit, but it's laying in place. In fact, some of the Greek words describe it and actually say specifically it's laying in its place, undisturbed. So they could walk up and look into the neck hole of that body cast, and that cast is empty. How is that possible? It also goes to show that if somehow the disciples had come down there in the middle of the night had somehow found the guards asleep, had somehow managed to roll this stone that weighed two to 4,000 pounds, managed to roll it quietly out of its place up the hill away from the sepulchers, what the Bible says, and not wake up the guards, and then sneak into the tomb to steal the body. If that had been true, they would have grabbed the whole cast and everything and gone, Right? You'd be getting out of there as quick as you possibly could. Why, why would they possibly try to get the body out of there? And the only way to get the body out would have been to cut him out or to start trying to unwrap that whole thing. And to do that would have created an incredible mess. And there would have been cloth and strip of cloth lying all over that tomb. 
But instead, when you go into the tomb, there's the perfectly unmessed with clothes, of grave clothes of Jesus lying there perfectly as it had been. What explanation? The tomb's empty. Everybody knows it. The grave clothes are there. And it looks like the body just disappeared. There's no other explanation for that. Those presence of those grave clothes also proves and disproves other theories that have been presented through the years about that it was at the wrong tomb. Well, the grave clothes are there. It's the right tomb. He's dead. The grave clothes just have a profound there is no, how do you explain that? There is no explanation except he just passed right through them, undisturbed. The angel came and rolled away the stone, not to let Jesus out. He was already gone. God wanted that door open so that people could get in and see that tomb is empty and those grave clothes are there. Now, let me make one other piece of evidence. In this case, we have not only circumstantial evidence that's overwhelming, that really there is no other explanation except he really rose from the dead. But on top of that, we've got hundreds of eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul writes about 20 years after the resurrection, he writes these words. Now, you got to understand that every historian in the world will say in 20 years' time, there's no way a myth or a legend can develop in that short a time. Because there's too many people still alive who can debunk that myth. So we're just 20 years from the resurrection here, and Paul writes, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, that's the name of the 12 apostles. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Then he appeared to his half-brother James, then again to all the apostles, and last of all, he, Paul says, he appeared to me as one born at an abnormal time. So I want you to get this. Jesus Christ appeared after his resurrection. This wasn't just fleeting glimpses. This wasn't like, you know, one day the disciples in their grief are sitting there and they're talking about Jesus, and all of a sudden somebody goes, did you see that? I think, I think that was Jesus. I think he may be here. That wasn't it. I mean, on the road to Emmaus, he comes walking up and he walks with them for miles, talking with them. He appears with the disciples that night and he's already revealed himself to Peter. 
So when the disciples on the road to Emmaus get back to Jerusalem to say, we saw the Lord, the other group says, well, he's appeared to Peter. And then while they're all there together, Jesus appears in their midst. And he's standing there with them. And he says, touch me. I'm not a ghost. Ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. They're still terrified. He says, you got anything to eat? And he starts eating with them. This isn't some fleeting, you know, passing, you know, mirage or hallucination. He's eating with them, talking with them, instructing them. He meets with them on numerous occasions over a period of 40 days. Over and over he meets with them for long periods of time. He, meet, he met with individuals. He met with a couple. He met with a small group. And then one time he meets 500 people or more at one time. There's, it's impossible for 500 people to have the same hallucination simultaneously. All of these witnesses. Then he appears to his brother James. In John chapter 7, we're told that James and the other brothers did not believe in Jesus. But all of a sudden, Jesus, after his resurrection, appears to James, who didn't believe in him. And then we find in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that after Jesus ascended back to heaven, the church gathered up to start praying. And it says, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, and so were his brothers. They believe now. Because Jesus appeared to them after he rose from the dead. And then the apostle Paul, who was the enemy of Christ, he was a persecutor of the church. He said, he appeared to me too. And that who had been the greatest persecutor, hostile to, to Christ, became its greatest advocate and missionary. We've got hundreds of witnesses. These witnesses are willing to die for this. Now I want to just say to you, if they knew the disciples had stolen the body, nobody believes, nobody will be willing to die for a lie. You might be willing to die for something you think is true that is a lie, but nobody dies for what they know is not true. Much less 500 and something of them, much less they were imprisoned. What did they gain from this? These people, it cost them everything. They didn't get rich. They became poor. They didn't get famous. They became, they became enemy, public enemy number one. They were on the, run, on the run. They were imprisoned. They were put in jail. They were tortured. They were crucified. They were burned at the stake. They lost everything. And none of them, not even one, recanted and said, you know what, it's a hoax. They were absolutely committed to this because they saw it themselves. Now, if you took 500 witnesses, if we were in a court of law, and you were the jury, and now the defense attorney starts bringing these witnesses to the stand, and let's just say that you bring one of these 500 witnesses, you put them on the stand, you swear them in, you say, tell us what you experienced, and they start telling you how they saw the resurrected Jesus. So after they tell their story, the prosecuting attorney gets up and cross-examines and tries to trip them up. Can't do it. So let's say that whole process took 20 minutes. Be pretty quick. But let's say it took 20 minutes. Soon as that witness gets up, another witness comes, does the same thing, 20 minutes. Then another, then another. To get through 519 witnesses that we are told by name happened, 
you would have witnesses starting at 8 in the morning, going to 5 o'clock in the afternoon every 20 minutes, taking an hour for lunch from 8 to 5, 20 minutes at a time for four weeks. Now let's say you're on the jury. You've got eyewitnesses, the Roman soldiers now, who said the disciples stole the body. But they did it when we were sleeping. And we haven't really gone after these disciples, and we haven't arrested any of them. We haven't tried to enforce any of it. The Jewish leaders didn't enforce it. And then you have 500 and something witnesses one after the other for the next four weeks who all come and say, my life's been changed and I'm willing to die for this. When you put the eyewitnesses and you put the circumstantial evidence together, the Bible says Jesus showed himself alive in Romans chapter, uh, in Acts chapter 1. It says he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. He proved he was alive. So anyone really with an open mind has to come to the conclusion. Everybody knows the tomb's empty. There's only two explanations. Only one of them really makes sense. He really did. On a moment in time, physically rise from the dead. What does that mean for you? It means, brothers and sisters, when he died on that cross, your sins, all of them, all the sins you will ever commit, were nailed to the cross with Jesus. And when he was buried, the Bible says he took your sins into that tomb with him. But when he came forth from the grave, he rose again from the dead. The Bible says that is the guarantee that God was giving to us, that the payment Jesus made on the cross for your sins was completely accepted by God. It satisfied God. It's enough. Your sins are completely paid for already. And the resurrection guarantees that. In John chapter 14, in verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except he comes through me. Jesus didn't say, I'm one of the ways. He says, I am the only way for you to get to God. We live in a world where there's many religions, many groups out there saying, here's what the truth is. But Jesus says, I'm the only way. And he says, I'll prove it to you. I'll rise from the dead. So now today, he's clarified it for you. He is the only one who can bring salvation. In Romans chapter 10, it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart, you believe and are made right with God. That's what the word justified means. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and you're saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between the Jews and Gentiles. The same Lord is Lord of all, richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone, that includes you, who calls on the name of the Lord, Jesus, 
shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sins. Saved from the judgment of your sins. So today, the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. We celebrate our risen Lord. And he offers to you mercy. He offers to us all grace. He offers forgiveness. And the Bible says, what we just read, that everyone who will call on him. So if you believe he really rose from the dead and you're willing to call out to him with your mouth, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved from your sins. So are you willing to call? The resurrection of Jesus means that you can't stay neutral about this. You can't just go, well, that's, that's good, and I'm glad to know that. I don't really care. Because the Bible says in Acts chapter 17, in verse 30 and 31, it says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent, to change their minds, what that means. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. By the man he has appointed, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Judgment day is coming. And one day Jesus will be the judge of every person who does not receive him as Savior. He will be their judge. And it says on that day the judge won't be extending mercy, won't be grace, it will be justice. You'll have to pay for your own sin forever and ever and ever. And you will hear him say, depart from me. I never knew you. So today he offers forgiveness. He offers to save everyone who will call. But there's coming a day when it'll be too late. So would you bow your heads? If you would like to settle this. If you believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead and you're willing to confess with your mouth today and you do that by calling on the name of the Lord, you just call out to him. If you'd like to call out to him, the Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how do you do that? You just pray. You cry out to him. You can pray something like this. Just pray, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe you were buried in the tomb. And I believe you rose again from the dead like you said you would. And you promised that if I would call upon you and ask you, that I would be saved. So I'm asking you now. Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. You are the only way to God. So give me a relationship with God. Eternal life. Home in heaven. And from this day forward, I'll follow you. 
I'll be another one of your followers. For I give my life to you. Thank you for dying and for rising from the dead for me. And thank you for saving me right now and making me your child. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, you called on the Lord just then in your own words that I'd like to welcome you to the family of God. A wonderful thing just happened to you. All your sins were just erased. There's not even a record of it anymore. You just became a child of God. The Bible says you just received eternal life and so much more. In fact, you're going to spend the rest of your life now discovering what great things God has done for you. And we'd like to help you do that. That's, that's the reason the church exists, is to help people get to know Jesus better. So if you just prayed that prayer with me, would you take the gray card that's in the seat back in front of you, put your name and a contact information on there, and check the box that says, today I prayed and asked Jesus to save me from my sins. And when you walk out in just a moment, if you would put the fill out card in the offering box, we'd like to contact you this week, just rejoice with you, and then see if we can help you in this new relationship you have with Jesus. It would be an honor to do that. I hope you'll let us do that. If you'd like to join our church, take that gray card and check the box that says, I want to pursue membership of the church. Drop it in the box. We'll contact you this week. Maybe you're a guest here today. Thank you so very much for coming. We've been praying all week long that you'd be here. So you're an answer to our prayers today. And we've been praying that you would be encouraged by the service and blessed by being here. And we have one more thing we want to do. We want to give you gift. This is a little book for all of you who are our guests here today. It's called The Resurrection and You. It's by Josh and Sean McDowell. And it's a wonderful little book that goes into even more detail than what I went in today to give you evidences of the resurrection, how you can know for certain it's true. And then it says, so what? What difference does that make in your life? So I hope that all of you who are guests today, would you take one per family so we'll have enough for everybody? And they should be on the tables as you go out the door uh, in just a few moments. Pick one of these up, and I hope it'll be a blessing and an encouragement to your life. All of you today, if uh, you wouldn't mind giving your offerings to the Lord as you make your way out. We're going to sing one more song. We're going to be uh, dismissed after that song. But thank you from the bottom of our hearts for coming. I hope you'll come back next week as we start talking next week about what God has gifted all of you. He's, he's made each of you, created you for a purpose. We want to help you find that purpose. We're going to talk about that next week. I hope you'll come back. So God bless you. Would you stand together as we worship our risen Lord?